Last weekend here on Media Watch, we heard how New Zealand's biggest publisher of news, Stuff, is joining big global names in news and protecting its content from the generative AI app ChatGPT. And Stuff's owner Sinead Boucher had earlier warned members of the International News Media Association not to repeat the mistakes of the past by allowing big offshore tech companies free access to their content again. The likes of Google and Facebook have made much more money out of their content online over the past 20 years than the news media outfits which actually produced the news in the first place. Sinead Boucher is also the chair of the News Publishers Association, representing big and small non-broadcasting publishers of news here in New Zealand. And right now they are collectively pressing Google and Facebook's owner Meta for payment for their news. The Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill, recently introduced to Parliament by Broadcasting and Media Minister Willie Jackson, is designed to force the issue. If the bill becomes law, it may also apply to those AI services like ChatGPT, Microsoft's Bing Chat and Google's Bard. But if it doesn't become law, what then? Well, we'll ask Sinead Boucher about that in a minute and how her own company is currently coping in tight times for news media. But as we heard last week, generative AI is also a tool that news media are now using for journalism. Some are even calling it an editorial co-pilot these days. For example, when Sky TV appointed a new chief financial officer this week, the subscriber service Business Desk reported that Cara McGuigan will take up the role early next year. Business Desk's story said she has previous experience in media, telecoms and retail, and Sky's CEO Sophie Maloney said she was excited about McGuigan joining the team. And the author of that story was ChatGPT. Business Desk uses it to turn simple statements from the stock exchange into online stories, And pretty rapidly, as Business Desk publisher Mark Martell told an AUT conference on AI earlier this month. Uh, We process NZX announcements into articles, which used to take us a minimum of 30 minutes and now takes us under 30 seconds. Well, Business Desk is owned by the New Zealand Herald's publisher NZME, so how long before the machines are producing journalism at the Herald 2 or even creating content for the company's many radio networks? And even if she's determined to keep the chatbots away from her news at Stuff now, how might Sinead Boucher use the technology to create it at Stuff in the future if it isn't already? This is a technology that is going to unlock um, changes in just about every industry, every facet of life. You know, It won't be too long before you and I, Colin, are able to have our own personal AI assistants, able to maybe manage some of the boring things in our lives and let us focus on the news. So everybody needs to get their head around how to harness the opportunities how that are available out of the technology. Stuff? What, what is it doing? I think we've taken a really, look, we've instituted a really clear set of guidelines for it to be used. Uh, so we're very much at the experimentation. However we look at potentially using a tool or experimental tool, there always has to be human in the loop, that these tools can be assistants, they can assist in research or they can assist in the creation of you know, graphics and things like that. They can also uh, allow us to replace a lot of, say, repeatable internal processes with you know, a, a, a soft piece of software now. There's a, a vast array of the way we can use it. What about but we're the... also really careful um, that... Every time we plug something into, you know, a query or something into one of these tools, all of that data goes back to that. And so, we, we, so we're very um, hyper aware of introducing any cyber risk, any leak to our data or anything into the organisation. So we're taking kind of quite careful steps. What about the nuts and bolts of 
producing and printing newspapers? Are you already using or planning to AI tools to, to do that? And also the journalism, you know, and we know, for example, you had plans to reduce the number of people employed in that print production area, yeah, right? Look, the, um, so we have made a change to our print producing team recently. So the production of newspapers was still a fairly manual process. And um, we've, you know, we have a new publishing system, part of which allows, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as being in the generative AI space. It's more of an automation of um, some of the aspects of laying out and producing a newspaper. And that has been um, implemented a couple of, over the last couple of months. And uh, do you see, like we heard Peter Hoare from the AUT on, on Media Watch say, like, you know, we hear people talk about AI now as almost a collaborative partner because it can suggest to you images, things that you might not have thought of before, and that's going beyond mere using a bit of software. But he said, nah, it's not. It's just like a handy butler that gives you what you want quite quickly when you are no, just a handy know, butler. So we, for example, we don't use um, AI to write stories. For years... There have been, you have been able to, and lots of media organisations already do, use some form of machine learning or AI to produce stories out of concrete sets of data. For example, uh, you know, text reports based on business company results or sport results and things like that. So mm. that's a labour-saving thing. There's no IP in that. There's no um, but you that's don't generic do that. At, we don't we don't do it. Mm. I wouldn't say that for for any reason particularly. We just don't do it yeah. at the moment. But yeah. lots of companies do. Um, so that's an assistant in some way because it allows the journalists to focus on um, stories that um, where human insight, human creativity, empathy, human connection, all of those things are really important. So I think you will see a lot. Um, more of that kind of thing come into news media where things that are just, um, you know, basically repeatable processes based off plain data sets, not, you know, what we would really think about as the work of journalism, the work of connecting with people, interviewing people, being curious. That's not the kind of stuff that, um, you know, I don't think that's the role of working with technology. That's the role of getting out into your community and, you know, really connecting with the people you're there to serve. And I guess there's another element where AI, these apps uh, and the technology, generative technology, where they intersect with journalism is just, it's it's a challenge to report all this, right? So the likes of Bloomberg, the Financial Times overseas have dedicated AI reporters. That's the beat. That's the round. Yeah. Um, I've seen, for example, some of the reporting of this can be a bit shoddy. There was an RNZ story, in fact, about... AI will predict your, which of your employees might quit within six months. That RNZ story went right through the media because of RNZ's copy share. It was on staff, it was on... Whole, and it wasn't based on an awful lot. Yeah. And it really was not the headline almost everybody put on it. Is that sort of thing what we've got to be wary of as editors oh, and readers? You know? no, absolutely. And look, we ourselves have... You know, I know one of our writers in the advertising field used AI to help research a story they were produced, and it put in an error, and that mm. wasn't picked up. It was not a terrible error. It was just a mistake. We are using these tools to help us or to help research or to but every you know, day do we... things. Then we still must make sure the human in the loop is doing their job properly and not sort of somehow just assuming everything that comes back is going to be correct. Almost quite literally every day there is a story about an AI advance, what it can do in New Zealand's 
news media? Uh, do we have the expertise amongst our reporting staff to actually weed out the stories that oh, look, really I, I don't, say, make, don't make I'd the I'd have cut. to say no, and only because this is so emergent. That's a bit of that early Wild West kind of era where everyone is really trying to get their head around what um, this means. And look, you know, a, a couple of months ago I stepped back from the chief executive role and have taken on more of a sort of, you know, what I, I want to focus on being the publisher and the owner. And a big part of what I had been looking forward to for that is to really um, spend the time educating myself to start to think about how we're going to learn about this so we can do our job properly on reporting on it, on our jobs, our industries. And debunk uh, the claims about the stuff that really won't have those That's right. Yet. But I also think um, we really need to upskill ourselves. Probably so does everybody need to learn. I think this is going to be a big challenge for the incoming government, whoever they are. Think about that in terms of legislation and all sorts of ways, copyright, all sorts of things, what it means for the future of work, what it means for all sorts of th- all sorts of things in our life. Now you mentioned there the next government, whatever it happens to be, uh, if it's a blue tinged lead one, uh, they may not be interested in progressing the fair digital news bargaining bill, which is before Parliament. Are you concerned that this bill won't go anywhere if the government changes? Well, look, I think you know we we support the intent of the bill, obviously, which is to provide you know that level playing field or that environment where you can have a commercial discussion in a, in a in a situation where there is a vast power imbalance there. And so I hope the incoming government, whoever they are, if whatever tinge they have this, that they will see that as the intent of it. What it is not is a tax on tech companies or a way of breaking the internet, all of this kind of rhetoric that you hear um, coming from those who um, who dismiss this kind of bill. It's simply a way, a framework of addressing a bargaining power imbalance. Then it's still incumbent on the parties to agree a term there. And I think, again, you know, we have been really um, pleased with the way we've been able to work with Google up to now and in, in terms of the industry and um, arranging deals that sort of give us some security over um, payment uh, and use of our content now in different ways. So they have engaged with you properly on that? Oh, yes. Yep. Look, I think that's – and that is a consequence of us, you know, being able to um, – have a negotiation through the News Publishers Association as a collective. Meta, for example, just won't come to the table. Form they, these platforms have uh, news content on there all the time, every mm. day, and they and again they grow their advertising business around that. So, and I think again, Meta is putting a huge amount of focus into its own large language models, training its own AI tools, and producing its own products. You know, where will that go? Um, at Open AI and Microsoft. Again, not some, someone we have spoken to really in terms of content deals before, but a massive player in the space. So we need to be able to get some of these organisations to the table for these discussions, and the legislation is how we do it. We also need this so that the taxpayer is not having to subsidise journalism um, in the way that they have done in previous years. We do not want taxpayers subsidising the work we produce. We want to be independent. We want to be thriving businesses in our own right and able to produce uh, the kind of journalism we want to every day. Yeah, one reason the government put up the bill uh, was because it indicated that it's not going to restart that public interest journalism fund. That ran from 2020 to 2023. What do you think the government is obliged to do for 
privately owned media. Actually, I think what the government is obliged to do is to think about the trading environment for New Zealand businesses and New Zealand industries and whether it's fair. My mind goes back to late 2018. Chris Farfoy became the Minister of Broadcasting and I think his first, you may have even been there, it was a, a journalism educators conference and I was he there. said, <laughs> right, and he had clearly been convinced there was a real threat to major news media providers that some of them might go under and they needed to be uh, supported. It seemed like he, he was convinced and he was comfortable with public money going to privately owned media that previously hadn't had this sort of investment. If there's a change of government, that that won't exist. Do you really depend on getting revenue from these big tech platforms? I can't speak for all companies, but as part of the News Publish Association, I'm the chair of that organisation now. This is a material, a really material issue for all of them. Sometimes there's a sort of sense that um, there's something different in here because it's journalism or that if we get a payment from a tech company, we should everyone should have to invest it in journalism. This is actually just a pure um, business and operating But environment. does that business yeah. now depend upon that stream I of I think revenue? there is no black and white um, answer to that because there are dozens of businesses in this country who all have different business models and different sources of revenue. But for all of them, I would say it's really material. And yes, I would say for some of it, it does depend on that. And getting those payments secured recently from Google has been transformative. If you you referred earlier to Australian, the legislation there, um, which has secured north of $250 million a year in payment to those um, news to news organisations, big and small. You know, some of the things that are really... That's um, in Australia. Just that's Australia. Yeah. Yes, it's Australia. It has been transformative. Like, I can't overstate how transformative that has been for securing the future of journalism in that country. The investments that have gone into newsrooms, the increase in the number of journalists, that, you know, the new products, the new business has been transformative. We're all minnows against the, the tech companies. We haven't necessarily got the wherewithal ourselves to go into fight for our own deals and, and to secure fair payment for our content. Well, the other critical revenue stream, obviously, is advertising. That's hard to get these days. You can see, I think... In some stuff papers, it will be right down to the local free sheets. And a lot of the ads are for stuff itself, right? So that space, I presume, that's not, or, or stuff products, it's stuff that's uh, spaces that's not being filled. It's difficult. Another form of advertising is the sponsored content. Now, recently, TVNZ copped a lot of the flack. Uh, There's a bit of controversy over um, the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Authority buying space. So there was airtime on TVNZ that possibly wasn't labelled as, uh, you know, a product of a paid partnership, as they called it. Stuff also got a six-figure sum to produce that content. Um, TVNZ's now re-looking at their policy about how they increase transparency. Does stuff need to do this as well if you're doing these sorts of partnerships that yeah, people look, don't I think, necessarily know I think know we, are, we have had very different approach already from TVNZ or anywhere else. We already have a really clear set of guidelines. Um, and, you know, number one for us is never try and fool the audience into thinking something is one thing when it's actually another thing. Actually, those so, guidelines are online for everyone yeah. to see, and they're quite extensive. Yeah, they're yeah. really extensive. We treat this really seriously. That is, we, we do not try and present anything pretending it's the editorial story or it's, you know, just something we've covered if it's something that someone has paid us for. So whenever we create content, which we also 
really, you know, ensure we make as interesting and engaging and, and all the rest of it, but it is really clearly labelled that this is sponsored content or, you know, whatever sort of... Um, it's provided by someone or it's sponsored by someone or what have you. So, And, and do you put yeah. your journalists on that? So if Beef and Lamb or something wants to do a set of articles that will be labelled as sponsored content, will you have you we know, have some of your special We have a team of um, writers and content creators who specifically work on uh, content for our advertising partners. Okay, yeah. so they wouldn't include, say, someone to be attending a Fonterra press conference and writing that up for a legit news story that, as pure news. That won't be the same person that who definitely is next not ha- week. That right. definitely does not happen. Sean Plunkett, uh, with his own outlet now, The Platform, uh, he recently suggested uh, there are rumours he said, but he didn't say from where, but that stuff is essentially underwritten, in his words, uh, by Naitahu. For some strange reason, and there's even the rumour going around that stuff are essentially underwritten by Naitahu, which is why they went all woke and went all critical race theory. Any financial relationship with Naitahu? Uh, Sean, I think, um, so no, we don't have any financial relationship with Naitahu. When um, this is something that is continues to be thrown up by certain parties, um, ever since you know I bought the company, I bought the company for a dollar. It is what it is. I do not have any other funders, secret backers, but there is. I feel like there is a certain group of men who present this in a way that she couldn't possibly have done this herself. Who are the real people standing in behind her? I find there's a bit of a whiff of sexism in behind that, as well as just a stirring the pot. And I do find it ironic that Sean Plunkett, of all people, who um, is entirely you know, funded by uh, rich listers who really want to shape uh, the news agenda in lots of ways, tries to throw stones at others. But there's zero truth to it. As for us you know, going all woke and critical race theory, that's not how we describe ourselves. Our job as the biggest news organisation in New Zealand is to make sure we are producing work that reflects the values and interests of the mass community here. All of our products put together reach three and a half million people in New Zealand and that is because we are really focused on delivering what New Zealanders are interested in, what's relevant to them, how they see their society reflecting. So, And you're doing all this with the company you bought from Australia for one dollar uh, with what you can attract in terms of revenue and what you might have in the bank. No, Absolute, no foundation look, investor or anything like look, that. Look, the, um, the opportunity to buy stuff, a moment in time it was in completely unique to that specific moment where Nine bought Fairfax Media in Australia, which we were owned by. We were like the free steak knives with purchase. They had no interest in a New Zealand business or a lot of the other ones. You know, we were tiny little business. They basically wrote off the value of us in the in the de- day they did that deal. We were always going to be divested. And then as they started to realise that it may not have been as easy as, um, you know, like the NZME merger, for example, the competitive landscape wasn't uh, such that they could easily just sell us to um, a competitor here. Um, there was that coupled with the arrival of COVID, New Zealand going into a basically a hard lockdown very early. It was right at that time, at wasn't it? At that time. Yeah. It was, and it was because of this that they thought, oh my God, we just need to get out of New Zealand. We want to retrench everything back into Australia. 
we were earning our own way, we're paying our own bills, we're profitable, we're not, we weren't leaning on the mothership for anything. Um, but they, it was just for them. We don't know what's going to happen in this pandemic. Let's just get out of there before turns to custard in New Zealand, which I think they really believed was what was going to happen as a result of the hard lockdown we went in. So, so here, here we are, three and a half years later. Yeah, well, three and a half yeah. years later, you are still the the, the, the owner, uh, the boss. You've Myself had to make... and um, 10% of the company is put in, has been put into the staff trust. You've had to make difficult decisions in that time. Um, I mean, remember last year doing interviews about deep unhappiness, some of the staff, there was even walking off the job at some point. You have had to cut some jobs and shrink uh, the way, or some of the regional newsrooms, the way news is gathered. And I mean, some people do tell us there is anxiety, there is worry amongst particularly the journalists, the news part of the business about the future. And do you have the staff on side for what you're doing with this new four executive tier with you as publisher that you're taking in the future? I would say we've gone through a lot of change over the last several years, as has any other media company, and we will continue to have to to adapt and you know thrive, I guess, and grow and be sustainable in the changing world. And we've just spent the morning talking about some of those big changes. You know, that arrival of generative AI is the next massive dis- digital disruption. You know, well, what, that we what? have to deal with. So we will continue to have to change. Of course, that is really unsettling for people in the business and we always do our best to try and be really transparent about what we're doing and why we're doing it. We also are really transparent about the fact that we are not going to stay the same. We can't stay the same. No business can stay the same. Um, I think that sort of nervousness, um, you would probably find that in all of the media companies here at the moment. Perhaps not Radio New Zealand, which doesn't have that same commercial operating view. But everybody uh, is making some form of change, whether it's to adapt to what's a pretty tough market out there at the moment or to start to think about how we're going to have to harness technology or really adapt what we're doing to meet the sort of changing um, you know, needs of customers. But what they specifically tell us about stuff, because I accept what you're saying, all media companies changing and tech is driving that and all of that, but what they specifically say is that... Um, that the company's top brass have talked about the importance of news and content um, uh, and, and local journalism particularly a lot in public, but in, in the company it, they don't feel like it's the top priority for in the way that decisions are oh, made. I would, I would completely disagree with that. And look, I think there is always, um, you know, I don't want to diminish how people are feeling. I think any period of change, especially in a tough market, is really unsettling for people when their livelihoods and their careers and everything are bound up in that. I've been through all of those cycles myself as a journalist. It has been journalism and media for the last 25 years has been in some sort of cycle or other like that. But, you know, if you think about um, we have organised ourselves into uh, Stuff Digital, mm-hmm. which is um, stuff.co.nz and Nabley, and our masthead publishing, that's all of our news mastheads, uh, the subscriber products. Those businesses are headed by journalists. Um, journalism is what we do. It's our purpose. You know, it's what we think about, talk about every day. But nobody can ignore the realities of a changing market, changing consumer needs, all of those things. I think what we say to the, the journalists is, you know, the best thing you can do is really pay attention yourselves to what your customers really need and want from us. 
and as long as we're doing a really good job with that, we have the best possible chance. But we will continue to change. We will need to continue to change. What, what some of them are literally saying is things like somehow the Simon Bridges podcast seems to me more important than viability of regional and staffing of regional news organisations, things like that. I think that is a really odd comparison to make. We have an audio division into our business. I'm sure I don't have to tell you, Colin, how popular audio and podcasts are with readers. And for us, it's great. We have the scale, huge digital audience and a huge print audience. And so, yes, we've got Simon Bridges, who is a masterful interviewer, I should say, and does incredible podcasts. We also have podcasts created by our own journalists. Some of those have been not only number one in New Zealand, but number one in the Apple Store around the world. The Commune, you know, Black Hands, all these, they are created by our journalists doing investigative work. It's mischievous to try and say it's one thing or the other. We are always trying to adapt to what consumers want. It's not in we're doing regions or we're doing audio. We are wanting to serve people with great journalism content in whatever formats, wherever they are. But we also have to realise that consumer wants and needs changing too, so we have to adapt to produce our work while there's a demand for it. That was Sinead Boucher, the Executive Chair and Publisher of our biggest publisher of news, Stuff.